Welcome back. So this is the Old Testament class, making sense out of the Old Testament. And there's so much we could discuss, because the Old Testament is a pretty big uh, uh, book. And um, last, last time we were together, which was two weeks ago, we started into the Pentateuch. And I want to spend probably about another hour in the, pen, in, in the book of Genesis, just in the opening chapters. Me. Yes, ma'am. Um, is there another class going on besides this one? Just for junior youth. Okay. Yeah. Are you wanting to go to another one? No, I, I, signed up for, I didn't realize I signed up for the Old Testament. Not that I might, but I oh. just wanted to make sure I'm supposed to be What did you here. think it was out of curiosity? I thought it was uh, the one where you learned about the church beliefs. Oh, that's Harvest Essentials. Yeah, that's, yeah this is not the class. <laughs> Sorry. Is it Harvest Essentials Tuesday night? Uh, it is Tuesday night every three months. Once every three months. Okay, so I'll take this So I, th- I think I taught it like... Uh, or I think I taught it on a Wednesday night a few weeks ago. When did I teach it, Mark? A couple, ni- couple weeks back. So you're welcome to stay, or if you want to leave, I won't be offended. No, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so uh, the reason why I want to spend a fair bit of time just in the opening chapters of Genesis is because the revelation we experience there really is foundational to the rest of the Bible. And it's, it's kind of important stuff. So here's my plan. I want to spend a little bit more time in, in Genesis. And then I want to talk about the laws. Because I think a lot of people struggle with the meaning, the purpose of all of the laws in the Old Covenant. And especially if you try to understand how they function in the life of a Christian. Then it gets like super confusing. Like do I just toss the first half of the Bible or is there some relevancy to it. So that's what I want to do tonight is um, get into Genesis a little bit more. So I did, we did some overview and I won't recap all that, but go back to Genesis chapter one. And I just want to point a few things out that I think are noteworthy in the opening chapter. So this is one of two records of creation in the Bible. One or one of two accounts. So chapter one is the account of creation in prose. And then chapter 2 is the account of creation in narrative form, focusing specifically on Adam and Eve more than anything else. So they're not two different accounts in the sense that uh, they're mutually exclusive or they come from different sources. I don't buy that at all. But they do frame things up differently for us to read. So if you notice in, uh, d- in day one, just a few observations here. In day one of Genesis, there is um, a, se- a separation. Light is created, and then the Bible says that light is separated from darkness. Now what's fascinating about that, they're actually given names, day and night. And evening and morning is mentioned the first day. But the moon and the sun had not yet been created. So the question is, well, how could there be light if there was no sun? And we don't know. The source of light is not specified. But since the sun and moon moon were created later, we know that it cannot refer to any light cast by those objects. What is noteworthy, however, is that the language of the text pushes the reader toward believing and accepting that God is talking about literal lunar days. 
Now, in, since Darwinian evolution became the de facto means of explaining the origins of the world 150 years ago or something like that, and because many people just believe that's the only option, a lot of Christians, when they read the Bible, are like, well, how do I, how do I continue to believe the Bible, but also factor in what I've been taught is 100% truth from modern science? And we could have a lot of discussions about that. That's not my purpose to get into all that tonight. But I just need to say that if you read Genesis 1, it's very clear that he's talking about lunar days. The language of the text makes it pretty challenging for someone to accept it as anything other than what we would call 24-hour lunar days. So just look at the text. If you look at verse 3, he says, Let there be light, there was light. God saw that the light was good. God separated the light from the darkness, and then he named it by the names we still use. He called the light day and the darkness night. So he separates light from darkness, and he names them day and night. And then there was evening and there was morning. And then the first day. It, it, it's, it's pretty challenging to make that into an age where there's, I don't know what, 500 years of daylight, 500 years of night, or it's some extended, ambiguous, multi-million year period of time. If it is that, then none of this is helpful in describing anything about creation because just an honest look at the text really presses the leader toward the reader toward accepting it as a lunar day now i want to take you to the very end of the bible just for a minute way back to revelation 21 i just want to draw your attention to verses 22 to 25 if you study the bible one of the things you'll notice is that many of the themes that are found in the first three chapters of the Bible are returned to in the final three chapters of the Bible. So in Revelation 21, verses 22 to 25, this is speaking of the celestial city, this heaven. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has, look at this, no need of sun or moon to shine in it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. So here we have God being the one that provides the light in the celestial kingdom. So it's probably not much of a stretch to suggest that God also provided the light in on the first days of creation. And then, as is the case in Scripture, look at verse 25, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. Uh, day and night become <laughs> metaphors in biblical thought for good and evil. Doesn't mean that people are incapable of sinning when the sun is shining brightly. But they become images of goodness. So light is often an image of goodness in scripture. And darkness is an image of sin. So even in Romans, men love darkness. 
What does he mean by that? They love evil. So this imagery that is introduced in the opening, or this reality, I should say, that is introduced in the opening verses becomes symbolic of human hearts gravitating toward God or rejecting God. Verse uh, day two is uh, this, there's a sky is described there as an expanse between water and earth. So I don't want to like try to overread the text, but I do want to read what I'm given. And it says, let there be an expanse in the middle of the waters and let it separate waters from waters. So th- there, there are some creationists that suggest that if this is the globe and this is atmosphere, I'll just draw a circle here. This is atmosphere. Unlike today, perhaps in the original creation, there was some sort of a, a water canopy or dense water covering that surrounded the atmosphere that is no longer there. Like maybe it came down in the flood. Um, some have gone on to suggest that maybe that dense water canopy had an impact on stable climate. I heard a scientist speaking many years ago about the dinosaurs, that if you, he hypothesized that if there was a water canopy, the, the pressure in the atmosphere would be different, which would allow reptiles to grow larger, would sustain you know, brontosauruses and those kinds of creatures. I think that's fascinating. I think it's a possibility. I don't know for sure. I, we don't have any Polaroids of this, but it does seem to suggest, unlike how we would describe the earth and the atmosphere today, that there was some sort of water above what we would call the sky and as well as waters below. Verse, uh, day three is the pooling of the water and the dry land. And once again, we see this repeated statement from God at the end of each day. You can see this at the end of verse 10, for example. And God saw that it was good. Now, bear in mind that Moses is recording this after humanity had become familiar with evil. But if he had been writing it, let's say Moses was around, wasn't, but let's say he was around writing this out as God created, it would have been peculiar for him to write down, it is good, it is good, it is good, because that would have been the de facto reality of how things were. And he wouldn't have been thinking about evil. He would have been exposed to evil. But he's writing it out at a later date when people knew what evil was. And so he emphasizes that when God created the world, he did not create the world in a chaotic state. Like many pagan religions, even ancient Near Eastern pagan religions taught. That there was primordial chaos and you know the, the bad gods fought it out with the good gods. So Genesis 1 probably functions as both a record of creation, but also a bit of a polemic or an apologetic against some of the pagan notions that were held by neighboring nations that God actually created the world good in the beginning. And there was no antithesis. There was no opposing force um, against God. So we have vegetation, we have plants, and God designs vegetation according to its own kind. I want you to look at verse 11. 
Let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed. Notice the specificity here. He's creating fruit, and he's saying their seed is in that fruit. And then it goes on to say, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. So I, I don't know if God was like presupposing that there might come a time when people would suggest that um, living organisms could eventually produce things that were different than their own kind, as is often taught today. But in the Genesis record, it's very clear. You can even see this in verse 12. It's repeated again, according to their own kinds, each according to its kind. Why would God emphasize that if it wasn't intended to remind us that oranges produce oranges, apples produce apples, bullfrogs produce bullfrogs, and people produce people. And we see even in our world today that that's true. None of you had a bullfrog for a parent. None of you had a fowl and an elephant for your parent. You can track your genealogy back a long way. And guess what? They're all people. They're all humans. And so this is emphasized that God sets in motion, we use a modern word, in the DNA of creation, this idea of reproducing each organism reproduces after its own kind. Now, one other thing I want you to notice is that there's actually a pattern here. A German theologian by the name of Klaus Westermann, who died in the year 2000, came up with a five-point outline that portrays every creation day. The first is there's always an announcement, and the announcement always starts with, and God said. And it emphasizes the idea that unlike you and I, we create with our hands, God creates with his words. This is what makes God unique. He just speaks, and it is. We have to take pre-existing materials and manipulate them into automobiles or houses or golf clubs or whatever it might be. But God has the capacity to create with his words words and his words alone so in every in every day there's an announcement that's the first step the second one is there's a command which speaks to the authority of the creator we have phraseology like let there be let it be gathered let it bring forth so there's an announcement there's a command and then there's a report and the report is and it was so and it was so and it was so. This is a pattern we see in these days of creation. Then there's an evaluation. And the evaluation is always, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good, which points to the goodness of the creator. And then in every day, there's a temporal framework established. And there was day, evening and there was morning the first day. And it was evening and it was morning the second day. There's evening and morning the third day and so forth and so on. So that's a pattern 
in every one of the creation declarations, and it, it causes the reader to be well-positioned to worship God, to be reminded that God is the one that spoke things into existence. When he commands, it is so. What he creates is good, and in that temporal framework. Day four, we have sun, moon, and stars created, and they are designed to mark out the seasons and to delineate time changes and all that kind of thing. Day five, birds and sea creatures are made, and once again, if you read the text, it says they're created according to their kinds, and then God commands them to be fruitful and multiply. To be fruitful and multiply. So reproduction is actually part of God's <coughs> creation mandate. And then we have filling implies rapid expansion of life as part of God's ideal. Day six, land animals and humans are created. Humans are created on the sixth day, not because we are less significant than the things that were created before, but it's meant to sort of imply that God is creating space and atmosphere and location and circumstances within which the pinnacle of his creation, his temporal creation, or his physical creation, I should say, can exist. So land animals are created they are told to produce according to their kind. And God saw, once again, that it was good. So, we now have some phraseology here I just want you to look at. So, in verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Notice that there's um, a repeated use of the plural. See that? Let us, our... So what do we make of that? Well, a lot of Christians like to say that's proof of the Trinity. Because the Trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons eternally existing in one essence. And that's fine, it's true. God is triune. But Moses didn't know that. So keep in mind when you're reading the scriptures that you have the advantage of a full canon of scripture. You have Genesis to Revelation. You know more than Moses knew. You know more than Daniel knew. Apart from divine inspiration, you had more revelation than all the apostles did too. So you have the advantage now of looking at a whole canon of scripture and saying, yeah, it's kind of obvious God is triune, he's three persons in one, he reveals himself as three persons in one. And there might be, we could say there might be an allusion to that in Genesis, but it would be a stretch for us to say that Moses thought that way, or that his early readers were like, oh, clearly that's a reference to the Trinity. So how do, we, how do we explain this? Very simply, notably in Genesis 1, but elsewhere in Scripture, God is often referred to in the plural. And in grammar, we call this a plural of majesty. A plural of majesty. Even in English, we don't do this too much anymore because we tend to be more casual with our language. 
But even in not so distant English, you would always refer to a clergyman using the plural of majesty if you're writing about him. The Queen of England will refer to herself still using the plural of majesty. She'll call herself we. Now the reason why she calls herself we is not because she has multiple personalities. But she understands that her role is a representative role with, with broad Im influence. So instead of thinking of herself as just an individual to the exclusion of everyone else, like most Western people think, she understands that she has a representative role. And so she rightly refers to herself using the plural of, plural of majesty. And government officials, clergymen in the past used to do that a lot more. So grammatically, God is being referred to here in the plural of majesty. This is actually bound up in one of God's most common names. So the word El in Hebrew means God. It's a generic word for God. So you could use that word to refer to a foreign God. Their God, you would use the word El. God's personal name we know is Yahweh, or in, in German, Jehovah. But this little ending, Im, which is found in a lot of different Hebrew words, pluralizes it. So the word Elohim, even when referring to one God, has like a majestic flavor to it. And so in the opening passages, chapter of the Bible, God says, let us create man in our image. And the reader can't then conclude, oh, God is creating someone who's equal to him. But notice, even when God goes to create the pinnacle of creation, he makes sure that he elevates himself to a position of majesty. So that you never think, when God created us in his image, that he created one that was exactly equal to him. But rather, in creating us in his image, he nevertheless maintains the stature of being majestic. And I think that's pretty awesome that the text bears that out. So then we've got to wrestle with this next phrase. When it says we are made in the likeness of God, like if I just said, oh, I have something that is in the likeness of something else, what would you normally think I meant by that? Okay, it looks like. So if you visualize this, and that there's a similarity in terms of appearance. And I think that's a very reasonable answer. But it doesn't work in this text because God is spirit. I'm flesh. God is eternal. I'm temporal. God is majesty, creator, infinite. I'm just a little human being. It's not going to be around for that long. So when we look at the word likeness at first, it's like, what does that actually mean? So then we just read a little further, and God, I think, describes for us what he means by that. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and all that kind of stuff. So I think, and this is what I've taught over the years, that likeness means dominion. So likeness refers less to how we look, and more to what we do. Now, dominion is a royal word. 
What's the official name of our country? The Dominion of Canada. So Canada is just a short form. It's the Dominion of Canada. We're part of the, uh, obviously like the British Commonwealth, but Dominion is a royal word, so there is a sense in which God bestows something upon humans that he doesn't bestow upon other people and that we have rulership over the world. But not rulership to the exclusion of God. We serve under his ultimate rulership. And this is where we get the idea when you think of like what kind of dominion can you have? Well, you can have a couple different kinds of dominion. You can have kingship. You can be a king or you can have stewardship. Now, I like to use this illustration because it's a modern one. Have you read or seen the Lord of the Rings movies or books? You've read that. Okay, so I've used this illustration before. You'll have to help me with the, the titles. Um, it's been a little while. But in the book, in the movie, I've, I've read the book and I've seen the movie a couple times, there is the King of Gondor. Is that right? And he has to come back and there are the stewards of... The steward of Gondor. So the steward is responsible for the kingdom, right? Well, what's the steward waiting for? The king to come back. Now, when the king comes back, what's the problem? Right, but what's, that's true, but what's the, what's the initial problem? He doesn't want to give up his rulership. You remember that? Because Is that the one where Wormwood's whispering in his ear? And he's all twisted into form? That's a different part of it. Okay, that's a different part of it. Okay. So, so we won't go there then. So we're not getting, I'm getting too far into the details. Let's watch the movie. So the, the, the idea is the steward fills in for the king, but the steward is not the king. But in the absence of the king, the steward has the responsibilities of kingship. And that's what it means, I believe, to be made in the image and likeness of God. We're stewards. God is still the king. He's always the king. We're never the kings. We're never the queens. We're just stewards. And our job is to steward creation on God's behalf. And this is why in our church, we often remind people, when we talk about stewardship, and we're talking about the whole of life, right? We're talking about taking care of creation. We're talking about taking care of our families, we're talking about stewarding our ministries, we're talking about stewarding our wealth, we're talking about stewarding however many years God gives us. This is the, this is the, um, the theological notion that the phrase we often use in our church comes, and that comes from, and that is that ownership is the enemy of stewardship. Ownership is the enemy of stewardship. You could also say kingship is the enemy of stewardship. Same thing. So if you think for a split second that you own your life, you will cease to steward it. Just the way it works. If you think for a moment that you own your house, that you own your children, that you own your spouse, that you own your ministry, that you own your church, that you own your money, that you own your job, automatically you stop being a steward. And in that moment, you stop bearing witness to the image of God. That's how it works. So at the beginning of the class tonight, I said the opening chapters of Genesis are foundation, foundational to everything. 
I mean, I just think that's like a big old key that opens a very big door to understanding for your whole life. And that is one of those truths that if you actually lock that one down, will alter everything you do. It'll change everything you do. You just got to remind yourself of it all the time. Because we tend to drift back into kingship and queenship almost every day. And that's shown in self-defensive behavior and stinginess and lack of generosity and self-centeredness and on and on and on and on. Right? And it's prevalent in our churches too. And we just have to like call it out and humble ourselves and understand that this stewardship does not belong to us. A couple other things. Didn't used to have to preach this too hard, but we do now. Verse 27. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There are, there are two distinct but complementary genders that God bestowed upon humanity from the beginning. And there's not a lot of flexibility there for a third, a fourth, a fifth, a sixth, a seventh, an eighth, a ninth gender. There's male and female. And at this point, uncorrupted and beautiful. So God gives all vegetation for humans to eat. When did humans start eating meat? After the flood. So um, we're talking about many centuries after creation. Uh, humanity became meat eaters. Prior to that, it was vegetarianism all the way. Probably not veganism. We probably ate some eggs and stuff, I'm guessing, but I don't know. Maybe. What's that? Yeah, they, they wore the skin for sacrificial, yeah, because God, God actually provided them with the initial ones, right? But, but it was after the, uh, the flood event that God allowed them to start eating animals. What, uh, what do you use for sacrifice? Uh, you know, oh, animals. Yeah, Kill them and offer them to the Lord. But they weren't allowed to eat them? They didn't eat meat. No. Okay. Not, till, not till the flood, after the flood. Yeah. Uh, maybe that was like a protection to make sure the animals didn't get eaten up in the year they were on the ark. <laughs> <laughs> well, there was two of them before we got on. There's only one now. <laughs> and then at the end, God says it's very good. Very good. So um, let me just make a couple comments here about six-day creation. Uh, many people argue against a literal six-day creation. Uh, many reasons for that, and it's, it's not like you're not allowed to have the conversation. You're allowed to have the conversation. But I would just say that the text of Genesis 1 cannot be used to justify really anything other than six lunar days. So you either just make it figurative and poetic, or you accept it. So if you're going to go with like age theory or whatever, you just got to make it totally figurative. Because the text, you can't fit anything other than lunar days in the record of words on the first page of the Bible. The word yom, day, can refer to something other than a lunar day, but when it has a number attached to it, I don't think there's any place in the scriptures or in the, the language of the Bible outside of 
even outside of the Bible and other literature where the word for day, which is yom, can be used to refer to anything other than a literal 24-hour lunar day. Uh, notice as well, as I stressed already, days four to six are governed by the sun or moon, which we understand to be part of literal days. And even later in Scripture, in the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments taught that God created the world in six days and rested on the seventh, and that became the whole rationale for the week and for Sabbath rest, which was Saturday, not Sunday, as Christians often mistakenly state. So the, the, the point is, is that the argument, part of the argument for the Sabbath is based upon Moses' understanding that creation took place in six lunar days and the seventh day God rested. So you can just kind of work that into your uh, understanding of how the world was created, but I, I think that if you're drifting toward like day-age theories or those kinds of things, you're, just, you're really going to struggle to figure out how those work in light of Genesis 1. And then um, Genesis 1 and 2, I just wanted to mention that Genesis 2, verses 4 to 25, is a narrative account of creation. So you notice man and woman were created by the end of chapter 1, but then it almost sounds at first read that God is telling you another story of how they're created in chapter 2. So again, uh, is this a second creation story? So let me just give you some arguments that have been presented by some scholars that think, well, this is actually a second or separate uh, creation story. Different order of events. So the events are ordered differently. God is described as Elohim in chapter 1 and Yahweh Elohim in uh, chapter 2. So let me get rid of this and give you a little background here. This is just kind of fun stuff, but it's helpful stuff. So if I say to you, and I wouldn't say this because it'd be totally weird. Um, Jack, I am man. You'd be like, hello, man. Right? That would actually be a true statement. It would be weird because we don't introduce ourselves by our species. But I could, I could do that. I could say, I am man. Or I could say, I'm Aaron. So what's the difference between the two? Both are equally accurate. Okay. One is my personal name. And one is more like, well, for me, my, my species. So God, the, the word for God, the common word for God, as I mentioned, is Elohim. This is English letters, okay? There's different letters for it in Hebrew. And the word for God, God's personal name, is something like this. So I just want to show you something to do with this because it's just kind of cool. This, uh, in Hebrew, unlike English, which is a collection of consonants and vowels, consonants and vowels strung together, sometimes there's two vowels in a row, sometimes there's a couple consonants in a row, and all that kind of thing. Hebrew, the Hebrew language is, every word is pretty much based off of three consonants. So, if you had like this consonant, and this consonant, and this consonant, and what you would do then is you would put little dashes or dots 
around it. And this would be your, because they read this way, this would be like your consonant, your vowel, your consonant, your vowel, your consonant, your vowel. And then you can add suffixes or prefixes to the beginning, and that's how you stretch the words out. So it's a little weird when you're learning Hebrew. It just it's, it's formed differently. So the word for this personal name for God is written like this, okay, in Hebrew. So when you transfer these consonants, uh, this, is a, this is unique. This is a consonant that sounds like a vowel. So that's why you have three, but this one's in here so for four. So when you transfer these into English, it goes like this. Okay? Or, so that's like the anglicized trans, we call this transliteration. When you transliterate this, these Hebrew letters into English letters, this is what you end up with. If you transliterate them into German, It's like that. So the H's line up, but you have a V instead of W, right? And you have a J instead of a Y. Now, then you got to flip them around because we read the other direction. So I'm going to flip them around for you. So then we have this, and then we have this. Okay, that's a V. So now we're like, yeah, but we don't, we need vowels. Because we add vowels to our words. So he, Hebrew readers, even today, if you open like the Jerusalem Post, Rob would know this. He's been to Israel. He's a brother that lives in Israel. It's all just consonants. They don't even include the vowels. Because if you're an adult reader of Hebrew, you can just look at that word and you intuitively know what vowels to throw in there to pronounce the word. So you don't have to. And I think in like primary school, they give you the vowels until you learn the words. And they're always little dots and dashes. They're not like full-looking letters. So the debate over the years is this, that when God's name, this word, appears in the Bible, the vowels are never there because uh, God's name was, personal name was considered so holy that no one ever actually pronounced it. So if a, if a Hebrew reader is like reading through the Bible, and he sees Yahweh, he'll just say Elohim. He doesn't even want to try to say it. And so later on, about a thousand years ago or so, when um, the Masoretic, or, or when Hebrew scholars went back and added all the vowels to the Hebrew Bible so that we could understand it because we were like losing the ability, they never added it to this. So there's a lot of debate of what vowels actually should go in here. And so we don't actually know. But it, most people add an A here and an E here. And so in English we say Yahweh. And Jehovah, that's how they, like 150 years ago, in scholarship, typically they would Germanize it and they would add those vowels so that they have Jehovah. And that's where Jehovah's Witnesses grabbed a hold of that one, right? But if they wanted to modernize it, they'd be like the Yahweh Witnesses. Right. So in the Bible, when you see Elohim, it's God, depending on the context, or if it's referring to the true and living God, we would just capitalize it. And this 
word in most English Bibles is translated with all caps. So if you're reading your Bible, and even in, the, I don't know, like you're in some text and, and the, the, the English translator writes that out, they're telling you that it's a different word. It's a word that means Lord. But when they see Yahweh, they'll capitalize it so you know as you're reading it that in the Hebrew, that is the word Yahweh. And Yahweh, the point of all this is Yahweh Elohim or Yahweh by itself is God's covenantal name. That was a name that was real to Moses when God said, I, I am the I am. Meaning this word probably means something like, well, I just am. I am the living one. When we see this in the Bible, it's, it's more than just God speaking of God and his activities. It's generally tied to something covenantal where God is talking about his, how uh, he's trying to communicate his personal relationship with humanity. So for our purposes tonight, we have Genesis 1, which is almost more, it's almost less personal, where God is Elohim. But in Genesis 2, God is Yahweh Elohim. Now, before we go any further, can you, would you be prepared to, like, guess why that might be the case? So one scholar might say, well, that's clearly two ancient, different, it's two different religious traditions there was this account of creation over here. There's this account of creation floating around over here. God was known by different names, and someone spliced them together. So that's one option. I reject that. So what would be, what would be another reasonable explanation for why God would reveal himself more generically in the first chapter and more personally in the second chapter? At the back. Oh, okay, so like, like, you're talking about like bringing John back into the mix, like John's, like John chapter one. No, because of creation, uh, it says that Jesus Christ created, created. Oh yeah, from the New Testament, but like just, just if you just had Genesis, like you, so we don't even know about Jesus yet. Why would God reveal Himself? And I'll, I'll use this word carefully, more generically in chapter one, and more personally in chapter two. done anything with human yet? Like, everything he created in chapter 1 except at the very end was just kind of like just animals and plants and nothing personal and then once he created mankind he wanted to be personal with them. Okay, good. So, Kelly, did you want to add to that? It's pretty much what I was going to say but he's in just that in mankind is the only species that was created in his image. Right, okay. And, and Jack? So the one he says created in our image mm-hmm. um, you know, Okay. Into what? Into what? Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay, good. I think you're on to something. Chapter 2 is a much more personal presentation of God's creativity than chapter 1. So it seems to me that chapter 1 is like the, the, the framework. Okay, this is what happened. Boom, 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 boom. God said it, God announced it, it happened, he evaluated it, it was good, it was good, it was good. There you got your summary. Now I want to tell you a little more about this creature called man. And in anticipation of God's covenantal relationship with humanity, God 
reveals himself using a more personal title for who he is. And so instead of seeing this as two different accounts, um, and even, even in chapter 1, God says, even on day 6, God created, what does it say? Um, birds. Uh, no, what's in chapter, where's day 6 here? Uh, okay. Let us make man in our image, so forth and so on. Bless, God said, let us make man in our image. Now what, what it doesn't say, it doesn't say, God said, let man be. It says, God said, let us create man in our image. So there's a little more ambiguity in Genesis 1 as to how God created man. But in chapter 2, we learn that God got very personal and he formed man from the earth. And as best as we can tell, based upon the summary of chapter 1, he didn't do that with any other creature. He just spoke, 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 spoke. But there's something, I can't imagine there's any other purpose to that than to communicate the intimate connection of Yahweh God with man because Yahweh God, now we learn something about God's personality, reaches down and he creates from the earth which he's already created, you and I. And a monkey doesn't get that blessing. And a finch doesn't get that blessing. And a sunflower doesn't get that blessing. But humanity does. So you could say this, that chapter 1 is more chronological and chapter 2 is more topical. And then it's followed by, obviously, the fall of man into sin. I want to talk about that, and then we're going to kind of jet forward a little bit. Go to chapter 3. <coughs> so the origin of sin. In chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, the Lord commanded them, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. I have a suspicion that early man's intellectual capacity was somewhat better than ours. I mean, I don't know how you can conclude otherwise when they're making metal tools pretty early on and bronze objects and all kinds of stuff. And I'm thinking to myself, like unless someone gives me a piece of metal and a welder, <laughs> How would I even think of going out, digging deep holes in the ground, extracting ore from stones? Like, where does all that come from? I'm, I'm thinking that early man was, was pretty, pretty intellectual. They probably had like huge heads, right? And they use like a hundred percent of their brain or something like that. Anyway, um, Proving that I'm not like them. I can't even remember where I was going with that. <laughs> what was the last thing I said before that bunny trail? Someone needs to help me here. What's that? 
Oh, origin of sin, that's what we're talking about. Thank you. Okay, so the origin of sin. So we have, how many words would you say are there in verses um, 16 and 17? Maybe like 25? Now, you and I have to remember a lot of rules. Rules at work, social rules, religious rules, rules of the road, on and on and on. Like, we, our minds are packed full of rules, and we're still responsible to keep them. But if I just gave you, like, one rule, oh, this is the only rule you have, and it's like 25 words long, it's the only rule, and you're like an early man, you're Adam and Eve, you're in the garden, you're totally awesome. You're not corrupted by sin or anything else. There's like no reason why you should ever forget that or mess that up. So when you look at the rule, look at it, look at it carefully. I want to stress some words because we're going to come back to these. You may, what's the next word? No, you missed a word, Nancy. Surely, what is that? What do we call that? A word of? Emphasis. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden. So that's the plus. Eat everything. Are you sure about that, Lord? I'm sure. Eat it all. You can eat everything. You can surely eat. It's, a, it's an emphatic positive rule. It's emphasizing what you can do, not what you can't do. You, shall, you can eat everything. Imagine going into a store and they're like, you can... You can take anything you want. Do you really mean anything? Surely I do. Everything. But, one little exception. But of the tree of, what is the next phrase? The knowledge of good and evil. You shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there's a lot of emphasis there. You can surely eat everything, but you surely can't eat that one thing. Now, that's a pretty clear rule. I mean, if you don't remember the 25 words. I mean, you got to be, you know, pretty intellectually stunted if you don't get this rule. You can have anything you want in the entire world except for one single thing. I mean, that's, that's a pretty clear rule. That's not complicated. You don't have to study that one. So then we go to Genesis 3, and this, at, the, at the end of Genesis 1, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So they're naked and not ashamed. There's a whole theology behind this. I think I was talking to this, some, some of our pastors about this recently. But a naked, they're naked. Like, they don't have to worry about insect bites. They don't have to worry about getting lacerated. They don't have to worry about getting sexually molested. They don't have to worry about frost. You know, they don't have to worry about rain. They don't have to worry about like, anything that could damage their physicality. They don't have to worry about sunburns. None of that. Everything's great. So not only are they totally protected, and therefore there's no, there'd be no reason to wear clothing if there's absolutely nothing that can possibly harm you or abuse you. They're totally naked. And they're not ashamed. This is like way more than some sexual thing. It just means they're like, totally in a pure, unadulterated, um, unthreatening environment. And in the Hebrew, there's a play on words between naked and ashamed. And the serpent was more crafty 
the word, word crafty actually rhymes with the previous phraseology there than any of the other beasts the Lord had made. Notice he was also created. So unless you think the serpent is like some demigod, no, he's created too. So I just want you to pay attention to the conversation. You've all read it. It takes place between the serpent and the woman. So he said to the woman, did God, next word is, actually say. So it's a question. I say, did God actually say? It's both questioning and there's, there's a bit of an accentuation there, too. If I say, did God say, did God actually say, you can hear it. There's more of an emphasis. There's more of a challenge to it there. It makes you lean in a little more. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Let's just analyze that for a minute. Why is it a very, very sly question? Yeah. Because he told Adam not to eat from the tree, not to eat from the tree. Okay. And he says, you shall not eat from the tree in the garden. Okay. Very specifically. Okay, so he's asking her. Trying to trick her by saying that. Yeah. Because he didn't really tell her. Okay, good. Adam. Good, yeah. So there's a, actually a usurping of headship going on there. But what else about the question is tricky? There's a couple things actually about it. So we got one on the table. Right. So why is that super sly of the serpent? I think it creates doubt in her mind of what she's supposed to believe. Mm. It just gets a wedge in there. Okay. Yeah. Good. Here's how I like to think of it. If I say to my kids, Hey, mom and I are going out. You can eat anything in the house. Anything. But mom made that cheesecake. We're having some people over tomorrow night. Don't eat the cheesecake. That's kind of like what God is actually saying. But if the neighbor shows up and, did your dad, did your dad actually say you couldn't eat anything when he's gone? What, what's actually going on there? Yeah, he's making, he's making me sound evil. And he's making a very limited prohibition sound expansive. It's like, uh, immediately it's, is God really a cosmic killjoy? Like, is he really that insecure? Is he really that mean that he wouldn't let you eat anything? And I'll just give this one to you. This third, third or fourth thing, adding to what you've already said and what I've said, is that he doesn't mention in quoting God the repercussions at all. This totally lose, leaves that part out. The whole surely die thing doesn't even mention it. So then, the woman said to the serpent, speaking for Adam and Eve, which she probably didn't have the right to do, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden... Okay, so more or less accurate. But then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. 
Now, I don't want to like over-preach the text, but I'll tell you what I, I think is going on there. She'd been told not to eat it. I mean, I don't know why you would touch it if you weren't going to eat it. But God actually didn't say you couldn't touch it. It's not like there's an eight-foot fence around it or there's a, like, don't, don't even go within a mile of it. He said, don't eat it. But I just find it interesting that she says, well, he says we can't even touch it. That's like so childish because I remember if there's, a, if there's cookies on the counter in the cookie jar as a kid, that's all you're thinking about. And like, maybe you're opening the lid, looking in, taking a whip, whatever it might be. It's like you're, you're, you're toying with it, you're playing with it. And then the third thing is that she reduces the consequence because she removes the word of emphasis which came up. The word surely is not in her quote. You notice that? She just says, you will die. So then, having questioned God's word, having paraphrased God's word, having reduced the consequences of violating God's word. So you got at least three things going there. It's paraphrased. Can't do that. It is, um, we could also add to that, the, it's reduced, but it's also added to. Because there's an additional prohibition that she inserts, I can't touch it, that God actually didn't say. And then the consequences are reduced. The word surely is removed. So the Satan's got her right where he wants her. So he just says, you shall not surely die. He starts right there. And he actually quotes God accurately, but in opposition to God with the word not. You shall not surely die. And then he accuses God. For God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So it's like God's holding out on you, holding out on you, holding out on you, right? And then um, Adam or Eve sees that it's good and so forth and so on. And then I think you just need to see there, because I don't know, some Sunday school teacher taught me when I was a little kid, and I thought this for years that Adam wasn't around. But it does say, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. So he's standing there being the passive dunce. <laughs> and that, by the way, is foundational to male sin. Right? So if you read that, and you go down to chapter 3, verse 16, talks about him ruling, the idea there is heavy-handed. If this is the roadway that God has called believing men to walk, they're always tempted to take two detours. And this detour is heavy-handedness. And this detour is passivity. Okay? Women are affected a little differently, but those are the detours that every man is tempted to take in his marriage, in his spiritual walk, in his sexuality, in his finances, in his stewardship, both of those things. Trying to control things you're not supposed to control or being passive and checking out. So now you have it, right? Depending on your personality, your background, your culture, you're probably going to be attracted to one detour a little more than the other. So you need to know that about yourself. But you're probably not exclusively going to be attracted to one. You might very well be attracted.